Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our 14th episode of Doorway Chats. As always, here with our lovely... Oh, wait. I always forget to say my name. Hopefully, you all know me by now. My name is Eliana, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Emma. And as usual, so excited to bring back another episode. If you haven't listened to our last one already, we alluded to that we are starting a fun and interesting segment on all things health and wellness and just overall well-being. And we're excited to have our first topic on that today. So today we're going to kick things off in that series with the topic of diets and diet culture. And we just wanted to start start off with a couple little disclaimers, trigger warnings. So if you're sensitive to discussions about diet and food and restriction, this might not be the episode for you and feel free to skip it. We're not necessarily going to be, we are definitely not going to be telling you to restrict or to diet or anything like that, but we will be talking in broad terms about diets and about diet culture. So just a little bit of warning on that. Also note when we discuss the different types of diets and diet culture, we're not going to touch on belief-based diets. So that would be any diets that are due to religious or cultural reliefs and also medical diets. So for example, folks who are celiac or lactose-free or of course have allergies, that does not apply to what we're chatting about today. So I think we can get started with the definition of diet culture and then also chatting about what the word diet in general can mean. So specifically, diet culture can refer to a set of beliefs that values thinness, appearance, and shape above health and well-being. So it places more importance on restricting calories or food different types of food intake, and labels certain foods as good and bad. So if you've been subjected to diet culture, you've probably been conditioned to believe that thinness or dieting specifically can equate to health, but, and also that the way you pursue that health makes you maybe morally superior than someone else, which when I read that off of the health website of San Diego or something, I was really shocked to hear that part of the definition because I don't think that what you eat should make you morally superior to anyone else, but that is why we're chatting about it today. Yes, totally agree. And I have a little bit of a thought on that for uh, a little later in the episode with the moral superiority or the moral high ground, because I think that's a really interesting point to touch on. So one more thing to note is that, of course, diet can mean just whatever you eat on a regular basis, no matter what it includes, it can just be a word for the food that you eat. So my diet, I want to include more protein in my diet and not necessarily referring to a specific named diet. But usually in this episode, when we say the word diet, we're talking about a specific diet with a name that has been popularized through diet fad culture. Mm -hmm. Oh, and speaking of diet fads, would love to get into a few of the different fad diets that we've heard. And I think some 
types of diets do stick around longer than others, but would love to get started with just chatting about all the different diets that we've heard of and our general opinions on them that are not positive or negative, just our thoughts. And to start, I'll start us with the craziest diet that I learned about when I, when I read this, which was popular in Japan in 2008. I think, Emma, you should probably try this one out because I think you'd like it. You can eat unlimited bananas for breakfast. And they said about seven will get you the recommended nutrients um, of potassium that you'd need. And then your other food choices during the day are just completely unrestricted. Wow, that is so interesting. I wonder if like at large, the population in Japan was undergoing some sort of magnesium deficiency or something. Why, why else would you want to do that? No idea the history, found this on Wikipedia and know that you like bananas and I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> wow, that is, that, yeah, that is hilarious. I feel like- And who is eating seven bananas? My stomach, yeah. Oh, I, that would, that's just too much banana. Like, I understand if you, if the goal is to have one fruit a day, but does it have to be mm. the same fruit? <laughs> I don't know. Specifically for I'm, this diet, it does. <laughs> For this diet, yes. <laughs> so in my research, a lot of the stuff that I found is the stuff that's being talked about a lot right now, which I think is interesting because also um, if you look at some of it, it kind of is like iterations of previous diets that have come and go. So for instance, one right now or a couple right now that are really big are like keto or paleo or carnivore ones that really emphasize animal protein and fat and de-emphasize grains and carbs and sugar and things like that I think those have gotten really big and in general those ones are a little bit more to me anyways, seem a little bit more like the the way that they work is by restricting items, not by adding in more things. That was kind of like a general theme that I noticed when I was looking at all these different diets is some of the diets are saying you can't eat this and this and this and this. So like for keto, you can't, you can't, you can't eat these carbs. Um, and then other diets are saying like, you should try to eat as much of these things as you should, as you can, like as much green leafy vegetables or as much, you know, healthy fats or high fiber foods or whatever. And I think that's kind of like an interesting distinction between like the restrictive versus the additive diets. Mm -hmm. And versus the diets who say you can eat like of these three things you can have two of them a day and you just get to pick which two or I'm specifically thinking about a lot of diets nowadays that are like the branded ones like Weight Watchers uh, or Jenny Craig where you can just get it pre-packaged from the store and mm -hmm. you can choose like any of the foods within like, 10 po as long as they add up to like 10 points on mm -hmm. their scale which mm -hmm. I think is probably arbitrary, but whatever. <laughs> I, 
I think one, I didn't think we'd get into this topic, but something that just came to mind while you were saying that um, with the Weight Watchers and the Jenny Craig, same with, I think, Atkins and mm-hmm. South Beach. Um, all of those, if you dig a little further into them, have a parent company. And in all of those mm-hmm. cases, the parent company is like a mega food giant company like Kraft or General Mills or I don't know what else, um, Heinz. No, Heinz Anyways, so they are all owned by these huge food companies. And then those food companies make the diet products for those brands. So I think that's just a good, a good little tidbit to keep in mind if you're considering one of those things. Because while for, at face value, it might seem like, oh, these are really great tools. They make a lot of sense. At the end of the day, those and pretty much all of diet culture is a money grab. (laughs) Yes. Wow. I did not know that, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the food giants are creating the food. It's just, it's just in different packaging basically. Exactly. So Hmm. neat. And so at, at the beginning of that, you talked about the like higher fat or like good protein diets fads that are or trends and I think it's also funny because there's the opposite trend of a lot of people going vegetarian vegan Mm -hmm. and not specifically for health reasons but just because either it's better for the environment or they're like finding alternative protein and so they're probably eating a little bit more of the stuff that you just mentioned folks are eliminating when they're trying to do low carbs or like eat a lot of meat, meat alternatives, right? Like proteins, which is very interesting. I find it really funny that there's such a spectrum because they kind of contradict each other. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think that happens a lot with a lot of the diets that have been happening in the past and then compared to what we know now. And Mm -hmm. it's tricky because you would think, oh, well, we know better now. Mm -hmm. But probably a couple years ago, we also said we know better now and things have changed so much. So it's really just personal preference of what you want to do and what your body would prefer to eat. Exactly. Like, you and I discussed before the uh, episode, the like in the 90s, early 2000s, low fat, people thought that fat in food meant fat on your body. And so everything was made low fat, like yogurt and crackers and chips and everything was somehow had its fat reduced. And in turn, I'm sure it had other things added to it to keep its flavor. So in the grand scheme of things, was it actually better? Who knows? But anyways, in today's world, healthy fats, keto, like paleo, these diets really emphasize eating a lot of fat. And so how are we supposed to know if like in 2040, we're going to look back and know something different about the keto diet or we bounce back to low fat or yeah, it's just all a little bit arbitrary and I think what you were alluding to, like your personal preferences, like since there are so many diets, it can't be possible that one of like these thousands or millions of diets that exist is the diet for every single person. Mm -hmm. And also 
some of these diets refer spe- to specific foods. And who is to say that one food is better or worse? Like an example that I'm thinking of, and it reminded me of this because of the low fat thing. Years ago, I think I read somewhere that if you switch from like 2% milk to skim milk, you'll lose like five pounds in a year. I have no idea if that's true. Probably not. Don't know the source. Anyways, I, I always drank skim milk because I just like it better. But I'm like, oh, I'm doing something good for my body. And then there's also studies that say milk in general, like humans are the only animal that drink other animals' milk. Right. So is milk in general healthy for you? And there's just so many different studies, like what makes skim milk better than 2% or whatever. And it's the same exact thing with diets. Yes, 100%. Um, something else that I thought was an interesting contradictory example is intermittent fasting. I feel like that's been a huge trend. Oh, yeah. Um, Very big. Especially just people not eating breakfast, which when I was a kid, I remember seeing commercials on TV saying that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And it was on like Cartoon Network. Like they were trying to promote eat, like children specifically eating breakfast. And now it's like, oh, you can eliminate that meal and lose weight or like feel better. Mm-hmm. But there's also different diets that say you should have like six small meals a day or right. have unlimited snacks and really small meals, which totally contradicts intermittent fasting so there's so many different ways to look at it definitely and uh, I think in a lot of cases when people regular people like us go and look online or on Instagram at diet related content people who have studied like nutrition or potentially biology or the sciences or health or medicine or something maybe are better equipped to like disseminate these diets and figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. But for someone like me who does not have a background in nutrition, it's pretty easy to read something that comes from like a doctor online or on Instagram and then be like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the reason, the reason that intermittent fasting works is this, or the reason that keto or paleo or gluten-free works is this. I think, again, if we looked at a lot of those doctors, they likely are having some source of income from something that like that makes it in their interest to say those things. So I think that it's just it's just really tricky. And also those those people don't know your particular situation. They don't know your energy levels. They don't know your preferences. They don't know your lifestyle, your socioeconomic status and your ability to buy like health foods and stuff. And so they can say like intermittent fasting works in this way and make it sound like magic. And to someone like me, I'd be like, Ooh, wow. But in reality, I think what is going on is based on some of the research that I saw online is that you're really just have a smaller window of time to consume food. So you're in a caloric deficit because you have less time to consume less calories. So you end up eating a little bit less. But all the gurus online make it sound a little bit like it's some sort of biological magic. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've definitely fallen into that trap because it it makes you believe that 
for the few hours you're eating, you can eat whatever you want. And I tried it for like maybe three days as, as long as I lasted. But then right when the clock struck that I could eat, I was eating and I was eating and I was snacking. And like that definitely was probably worse for me because I was having all these unhealthy snacks instead of adding good fruits and vegetables. Right. And so I guess it kind of like works in two ways. Cause like I have always been a breakfast person and like, you know, and so when I started to hear about intermittent fasting, I, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I could never do that. I love breakfast, but I definitely tried it and it was not comfortable for me because my body likes to have breakfast. But then at the same time for someone else who like doesn't do well with breakfast, there are some people who like feel nauseous if they eat first thing in the morning and for someone like that maybe hearing about intermittent fasting was like very validating for their experience and Mm -hmm. they were like okay like also not eating breakfast can be healthy but also breakfast can be healthy too like it's just there's different people yeah and there was a really interesting study done it was done with over twenty one thousand people they went on 14 different diets so like really wide range of what they were eating and how they were um, dieting. And they were saying that the like moderate certainty evidence, so basically they're not even 100% sure about this, which I think goes to show about so many of the different diets and studies that have been done for them. But they're saying macronutrient diets over six months resulted in modest weight loss and then substantial improvements in like cardiovascular or um, blood pressure. But by 12 months, the effects on weight reduction and improvements in like health, um, overall health, largely disappear. So that was for the macronutrient. But then among all of the 14 diets, they were saying that after 12 months, Basically, all the benefits of cardiovascular, et cetera, disappeared and weight loss, weight loss diminished so much that it wasn't even worth it. So then I did more digging on like, how long you can seemingly follow a diet. And this stat, it, was, it said 98% of diets fail. So why do 100% of dieters think that they will be the 2%? That's a very, very, very good point. Like, I understand everyone wants to be motivated. And I mean, to a certain extent, I would be the same way. If someone told me, oh, 98% of people fail at this, but you can try it. I I might try it, but... Mm -hmm. Also, it's so important for us to acknowledge 98% of the time it doesn't work. Maybe that's for a reason. Maybe it just literally doesn't work no matter who you are. So why do people think it's going to work for them even if it didn't work for anyone else? Right, right. Yeah, and I don't know. This is maybe just – this is definitely just my opinion. But from my – in my view, I think that anything that causes you to like restrict or be uncomfortable or unsatisfied with the way that you're eating 
anything that requires you to like think about food an inordinate amount of time in your day, like more than you usually would, anything like that, at least for me is bound to fail. Like those things are not going to work. And so, but everyone of course likes these like clickbaity diets that claim that they're going to help you lose weight or they're going to help you get trim for summer. And so it's a lot more motivating, like you said, to take on one of those diets and hope that you're going to be one of the ones that's successful for rather than make very slow and like tiny incremental changes over a long period of time. And if weight loss is actually your goal, because there's nothing wrong with that inherently, then you might lose, I don't know, 10 pounds over two years or something, not 10 pounds in two weeks, like maybe some diets say. So I don't know. I just think that for me anyways, those like really small changes that you make are a lot more Mm -hmm. sustainable. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's even like what you said about adding foods. That's a lot more sustainable. Like we talked about, I know we keep referring to burnout because that was the best and so many learnings, but they mention in the book that when you're goal setting, it's a lot easier to accomplish a goal when you're adding something than when you're taking it away. And if you add something and it becomes a norm in your life, like let's say I make a habit out of eating a a banana every other morning, then it will become a habit and I'll start to actually want that banana instead of wanting the unhealthy breakfast cereal that's full of sugar that I was going to have because it's just like, oh, it's time for my banana. This is normal and it's what I want. And I guess that goes with fueling your body with healthy stuff, but also fueling with your body with what you want. So like intuitive or mindful eating. Yes. I think that it's really kind of like gives you hope to see more talk about that. At least for me, I feel like I have seen like in the media, on social media, a lot more talk about like mindfulness and intuitive eating. Um, which which will maybe hopefully one day start to crowd out the like diet culture talk. But I, I feel like that's a really good reason to have hope for this topic is that there's like this discussion about intuitive eating and what does that mean for people? And yeah, do you want to get a little mm-hmm. more into intuitive eating? Yeah. So by more formal definition, it's a philosophy that rejects traditional dieting and calls for listening to what your body wants, when it wants it, and how much you want to eat. So it's not really designed for weight loss or for the goal of um, changing your physical aesthetic, but really considering your mental and physical health holistically. So for starters, one of the main points of intuitive eating is, like we mentioned, you stop thinking of foods as good or bad. And you just put them into different categories like this is protein, this is fiber, this is fat. And then you can work out the balance that your body needs for the specific level of exercise you're doing or just the type of body that you have. And there's not really a a secret to like how can you know what intuitive eating means for your body because – it can be difficult, I think. I think I do intuitive eating right now, but 
at the same time, I don't know that I do it properly because my intuitive eating would be so unhealthy. So, so now that I'm thinking about this, I'm definitely intuitive eater in that I eat how much I want and when I want. And I eat what I want typically. But I am starting to be more aware of what I am eating. Mm-hmm. And if that's actually going to help me accomplish the goal of right. like filling myself up with healthy nutrients to like, get started for the day or feel better later. Right. And I think um, according to some people's definition of intuitive eating, or maybe like just a, a longer or broader definition, I think that is intuitive eating, like knowing that you know, like, yeah, I want to eat a huge slice of chocolate cake right now, but I'm also planning on going for a run in an hour. And am I going to feel good? (laughs) Like, is that going to feel good to my body to eat a slice of chocolate cake and then go for a run? Probably not. So you choose, like, I don't know, whatever you choose instead, um, instead of the chocolate cake, or I think part of it is like the knowing how things are going to make your body feel, because the ultimate goal is just to like nourish and make your body feel good right so Mm -hmm. if you know that like even if you want a whole bag of chips if you know that it's not gonna feel good to eat the whole bag as long as you don't feel like you're like completely restricting yourself I don't know but you're right it's like a fine balance because you have to be able to satisfy your cravings but also listen to what your body needs like nutrition wise because everybody needs like nutrients not necessarily saying like that you have to eat quote unquote healthy food, but just knowing that your body needs a certain amount of carbs and protein and fat to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always think about that because I think about, well, I'm thinking about now kids and intuitive eating. And I was chatting with someone who said that for her first kid, she was really strict and she was like, no sugars only like every Saturday you get some sort of dessert and like was trying to raise them with a really healthy diet. And then by her second child, she was like, forget it. Just you want something unhealthy. Just take it. I don't want to have to deal with this tantrum. Like both of you can eat it. And the first child is actually more of a sweet tooth and wanting those unhealthy foods more than the second one who just had basically not based not completely unrestricted but you know was probably eating dessert more than once a week and you had mentioned a social media influencer I think it was from her page it's called Abby's Kitchen it's Abby's with an e that was the mistake I made posted about if you have dessert with every dinner then it normalizes having a small portion of dessert and treating yourself to something that you like instead of restricting it and then feeling like when you do get it you just have to eat as much of it as you can because you're not going to get this very often or whatever like that scarcity mentality around food like you have to yeah 100 percent. or like it's kind of the same feeling as if you live and um, maybe you can relate to this, like when you live with your whole family and there's like a baked good in the house and everyone is eating as much of the baked good as they can because they're afraid that the next time they come back, it's going to be gone. It's kind of like that same feeling. Whereas 
like you said, if you just like, if you know that you can, you get dessert every single day, then the days that you have, then it's going to feel so much less special and so much less like off limits Mm -hmm. than if you are only allowed to have dessert on Saturday. And I think, um, I think that's a good point about children because I feel like that's a really important thing to teach kids. And I think on Abby's kitchen page, she talks about how when she serves her kids who are like three and one or something, when she serves her kids dinner, she includes dessert on their plate with their dinner. So they don't even like distinguish between what is like dessert and what is dinner. They just think of it all as normal and all as one thing. And I thought that was a really cool approach that would probably benefit a lot of adults too. Yeah. I definitely think I wasn't really restricted on the access to Nutella that I was given, which (laughs) I don't know if that's really a good thing necessarily, but now I feel like I am self-aware to the fact that I eat a lot of it. I don't need to have as much of it as I like used to because I'm aware that I'm eating maybe too much of something that's unhealthy because I'm I was eating it instead of healthier foods but having it as a kid means now I'm like okay it's fine like I'm not dying for this but I know of someone who like will come over and they're like oh my gosh I'm going to have a scoop of your Nutella and a slice of your processed cheese because I never have this at home. And also, do you have like any other junk food and going right to the junk food drawer, like as a, as a kid having them over. And I was like, yeah, this junk food drawer is just always here and (laughs) nobody is monitoring it. But for that reason, we weren't taking a ton of it. And now I just feel like my body has adapted to eating so much chocolate that it doesn't even matter and just considers it probably some sort of nutrients. Well, if that's what works for your body, then that's what works. Like, I feel like as long as, you know, like you're not, as long as any of us are not eating any one thing until like our stomachs hurt or something, then everything in moderation is a bit uh, corny, but I think it's a good rule. No, moderation is, yeah, moderation is the key to any healthy eating or just healthy lifestyle in general. I agree. So... Um, I had a couple questions if you're ready for them about kind of diet culture in general. So the first one I was wondering, as I looked through all these diets, there's all these, all these lists that if you search best diet, it's like best diet of 2021, best diet of 2020. And these organizations like magazines or like health organizations will, um, rank the diets. And actually something that's interesting is that over the past few years, the diets that have been ranked in the top three are much more of those style of diet that's adding more things in. So like the Mediterranean diet, like, okay, focus on eating vegetables, legumes, fish, fruit, nuts, and then you can eat some of the other stuff on the side, but try to focus on those things. Or the DASH diet is the same idea flexitarian diet is similar. Anyways, there are all of these people and places that are trying to rank diets. Do you ever think we will come to a time when someone will figure out what the best diet is for the human body? And do you even think that's possible? No, I don't think we will ever get to a point where we know 100% because 
the world evolves and like so do humans and what we need will probably be different in 20 years when if you've seen the movie Wally, we're like all sitting in outer space and we never have to get up from our chairs our like our lifestyles are going to be different and so we'll need different types of nutrients and different foods on the topic of ranking though i find ranking them really interesting because it feels so unnecessary when after considering everything that we've just discussed different ones will work better or worse or different types of bodies and stuff i also wonder about the credibility of these people because for example one of the articles i started reading and then i realized what website it was i was like oh maybe i should just find a different scientific study and i found a few scientific studies and like government websites which i trust a lot more but I don't trust any of those rankings. I also, though, depending on the topic, I don't trust the rankings of anything unless it's like really, really crowdsourced. Because like you said, with the doctors, they're probably just putting things in that are getting sponsored by them. Like number one diet is going to be Weight Watchers because Weight Watchers paid for this or whoever. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes... Yeah, I 100% agree. Like it's, I don't know how you can say across the board, this is the best diet or this is the best diet. But I do think again, that it's encouraging that um, like pretty much across all the lists that I looked at, the the top diets were ones that are more additive and less restrictive and really just trying to emphasize what is good and not what is good because there's no morality assigned to food, but trying to emphasize what they want you to include, but not saying that you can't have the rest of the stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's encouraging to see that maybe like the health community is moving away from the, the like no carbs, no sugar. Like Mm -hmm. if you eat this, it's bad. Um, I think that's kind of encouraging, but yeah, I still don't think um, like, like the Mediterranean diet, for instance, that, that probably works great for someone, but also probably eating way more red meat works for someone else somewhere in the world. Okay, Mediterranean diet was actually a new one that came up for me when I was doing research. So do you wanna explain what it is? Yes, so it obviously has its roots in the Mediterranean countries and the way that people in the Mediterranean would eat. So really the goal of it is to emphasize things like vegetables, fruits, nuts and seeds, uh, healthy fats like olive oil, um, fish, poultry to an extent. And then there's less of an emphasis on like red meats. Oh, also whole grains is in there. Um, But there's less of an emphasis on like red meats um, and processed foods in particular, I think is a is one that they encourage not focusing on. Mm-hmm. I'm, I find it interesting that there's a diet kind of named after a place, like an area on earth, because that means like the kind of the people in that area are eating in this way. And it really just shows how westernized our culture is in North America because, I mean, we're not living off the, I mean, neither are people in the Mediterranean anymore, but 
we are much less so living off the land and not eating local or seasonal items like they are. Yeah, definitely. And, and turning more probably to like processed or manufactured foods Mm -hmm. than maybe are in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Which also can be like, there's also something to be said about those because they are convenient and they are more inexpensive. So there's also like a whole other arm that we didn't really get into, but like socioeconomic status plays a big role Mm -hmm. in your ability to eat in a certain way. Okay, so this is kind of going back to what you were saying about kind of having a a higher moral ground if you're on a certain diet. Um, So first of all, do you think that there is some sort of like elevated status or elevated moral ground when that is associated or assigned to someone who is dieted, dieting, maybe not to you necessarily, but to the world in general? So like people tend to get a lot of kudos if they have fasted for a hundred hours straight, or if they have, you know, not eaten sugar in however many days or Mm -hmm. whatever, they, they tend to get congratulated for those things. And I don't know if it's because it's some sort of show of discipline or what people exactly think is like so amazing about it. But do you think that there is some sort of, like, do you see that out in the world that, that people who do those sorts of things get a little bit I, assigned higher more ground? I do see it. And I think it does still exist because I forget what the song was, but there was a lyric that the singer mentioned. She wasn't strong enough to have an eating disorder and basically saying Like for those folks who can really heavily restrict their diets or somehow getting rid of the food right after they eat it, it's like a mindset that you have to be prepared for and like motivated to do and complete this challenge. And I think she did get some, some slack or no, not slack. Oh my gosh. Why can't I not know any of the words? Some flack? Yes, flack, that's the word, Um, about that lyric, because it's not necessarily, oh, I'm really strong, so I can be anorexic and not eat anything. Like, that's a serious medical condition that, like, folks suffer with all the time. And so it's important not to look at it that way. I, I would like to think that it's not happening anymore. But it's hard when you know like a close friend is trying to meet a goal of eating healthier. And so of course you're going to say congratulations on like meeting your goal. But at least I have trying to, I'm trying to be more careful about saying like, I'm really proud of you for accomplishing what you wanted to accomplish. I would have been proud of you no matter what you were trying to accomplish. Like, I'm just happy that you completed what you wanted to do. I don't necessarily not care but like I don't I don't necessarily want to support that you've restricted this item or that you've like done this thing if that makes sense right and it doesn't and doesn't probably change your perception of them yeah like if someone told me that they had lost five pounds in the last month or two I would say I'm so happy that you are feeling comfortable in your skin 
Yeah. But I wouldn't want to say that you're happy. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say like, oh, good job. Like five pounds is great. And that's so much and blah, blah, blah. Because I wouldn't know. Now you look amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say like, I would say that I liked them before and I like them now, but I'm super happy that they completed their goal. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. And my last question, which ties in with the intuitive eating topic is about labeling the way that we eat. So do you think that there is, again, maybe not for you, but in general, do you think there's some sort of pressure to label the way that we eat, whether it's like through a diet, like, like I am vegan, I am paleo, I am gluten-free, I am an intuitive eater even, because I heard this somewhere on Instagram, but another word for intuitive eating is just eating because you're just listening to your body and giving it food because it needs food. So do you think that there is some sort of pressure to label the way that you eat? And why do you think that such a pressure would exist if you do think so? I'm not sure there's pressure to label the way you eat unless you feel like you are eating close enough to a certain diet that can be labeled. Um, And that's why I kind of like the word flexitarian because it really doesn't mean anything. It just kind of means that you're eating and sometimes you don't eat meat and sometimes you do. Um, Like that should be everyone. I mean, I haven't eaten meat today and I probably won't and I probably should eat some sort of protein. But anyways, like I'm not going to call myself a flexitarian just for today. But that's just because I would prefer not to put a label on it. If it makes people feel good, that's fine. They can totally do it. At the same time, it it goes with everything in this world that we label, like having to label your relationship or even on Facebook, how you can write about your relationship that it's complicated or whatever. Like nobody needs to know. I mean, fine, if you want to put that. I support you no matter what you want to do, but we don't really need to know if it's complicated or you just got together or what, like, and I mean, there are certain milestones, right? But anyways, it just weirds me out. We don't have to label everything, but at the same time, labels, especially when diet can be helpful to understand like your, your restrictions or your preferences. Like if someone is going to come over and they say, that they're pescatarian, it's really helpful because then I automatically know exactly what they can and can't eat and I'll make sure that there's something there for them. So it's important, just don't want to label and make the labels feel that one is more superior than the other. Right, right. And that you're not changing the way that you eat just in order to have a label. Yes, yeah. Like that you're not... I don't know, that you're very close to being a vegan, but you really love cheese. And then you stop eating cheese just so you can label yourself vegan. I feel like that is maybe not advised, but <laughs> I see, but that's a really good point about like, if you go to a restaurant, if you say like, oh, I'm vegan or, oh, I am yeah, a pescatarian or I am lactose intolerant, which again, isn't really the topic of this episode, but that's a good point that I hadn't considered about the labels that sometimes it actually is useful. Yeah, but definitely not useful in situations where like the movie 27 Dresses, the sister is like a fake vegetarian just because her like soon to be husband is one. And then it's like revealed at the end that she's just been eating meat the entire time without him knowing. And 
she just wanted that label so that like, he would accept her. So silly, unnecessary, but that's a movie. So I hope that it doesn't happen in real life, although I'm sure it does. I hope not. I hope not. So is there any last key takeaways that you want to share before we wrap up? I think my last takeaways are just for everyone that, well, we are not dietitians, we're not registered dietitians. So if you are thinking about making any big changes to your diet, then I think that's also something that people should do before making big changes to their diet is go like, if if you want to start even like intermittent fasting, or if you want to go vegan, it's probably helpful to talk to a professional because they can tell you how to do it in a safe and healthy way for your body. Um, and I think on that note related to registered dietitians, I think it's really, again, hopeful to see all the people out there, like the influencers who are a lot more, um, promoting intuitive eating, mindfulness, regular eating to fuel your body, not restricting, getting away from diet culture, all that kind of stuff. I think it's really nice to see that happening because I think for a lot of people, the diet world can be really difficult and scary to navigate. Mm -hmm, Definitely. I think my key takeaway will be what you mentioned about intuitive eating is just eating. I I really like that. (laughs) And just being self-aware about what I'm eating and thinking about if I'm restricting something, why am I restricting it? Is it just to conform to a specific diet that probably will not work after 12 months anyways? Or is it because it would be like a healthier option for me and more intuitive if I ate that because it would serve my body better. Right. Yes. Always listen to our bods. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed and we will see you in our, oh, I keep saying see you, um, whatever. <laughs> we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you next episode. <laughs> Bye. Bye.